Hi, I'm Ryan, the Mastermind Rules Guy. I'm Ben, the Consumptive Player. I'm Helen, the Changeling Storyteller. I'm Jared, the Statless Game Master. Together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast, and we are here for part two of our Blades in the Dark review. To pick up where we left off last time, one of the key differences that Blades in the Dark has over other games is it is designed with the intention that you're a group of scoundrels, you go on heists and gores, and you go out and you have these adventures. In a normal story, that would involve your characters pouring over and studying the museum they're going to, to case and steal a painting from. Right. And in most games, that means you, the players, would do that too. Yeah, when we're playing Hunter, I would say that for every major story session we have, we have a session of how do we do it and planning. Oh, we usually have two or three. I was... For, for major moments. Trying to make us not sound bad. But yes, you're right. And that can lead to some exciting discoveries in character when we go and investigate things further and the plan has to change and that can be fun, but it can also lead to a lot of hypothetical stuff that actually turns out never comes up. So that's how many hours wasted? And if we were doing that all the time, like if, if we were solely a heist game and we had to do that planning before we did everything and it always had that possibility, that would get really frustrating, which is yes. why Blades in the Dark doesn't do that. If you want to have that kind of procedural game, and, and sometimes that's what you want, that's great. But since Blades in the Dark is entirely about a group of characters who do heists all the time, they cut that out. Your character's planning happens off screen. Instead, there are a few options that are listed as the way you want to approach starting your score. Full frontal assault or infiltration or bribe your way in, however you want to do it. Right, and they're like incredibly generic. They're just there to give you the the basic structure and they all have you answer a question. You're breaking in, great. Where are you breaking in? Are you breaking in on the rooftops? Are you coming in through a sewer? Whatever, It, it doesn't matter. Well, that's not true. It might matter. Um, <laughs> I was going to uh, say, it matters a great deal. Well, it, but, it, matters, uh, it matters in terms of the advantages and disadvantages that apply. Right. But it's all, it's all based on the narrative. You answer that question, and then you make a roll to see where you pick up with the GM having you start to make further rolls. If you roll especially well, great. You get through the first line of defense. You get into the area you're supposed to be in. You maybe even disable a problem that was going to happen to you or you avoid notice from someone. If you roll particularly poorly, you get in, but maybe an alarm goes off. At least a problem crops up immediately. And this is basically a how much leeway do you have with your doom clock that we talked about last time. Right. Right. And these are called engagement roles. And you can't have multiple for one score. Like, you don't all have to come from one location. Right. And you can, and you're encouraged, in fact, to do things like assist each other or to, uh, we'll get to it in just a second, a flashback to something like, well, actually, I've been casing this joint for a month, so I already know all the ins and outs or whatever, and really pump up your engagement role, that's what they call this mechanic, so that you can start off much further into your score. 
than normal. This is kind of a common philosophy throughout Blades in the Dark. They really encourage you to skip over stuff that you don't feel is going to contribute a lot to roleplay. And, and when I say you, I mean everybody at the table. This game emphasizes action way more than almost any other game I know. They emphasize, like, we don't want you planning before we start. We want you to start and then plan in a flashback. It's an extension of the the other rule that you see occasionally. If it is not interesting to see people fail, you don't need to roll the dice. This is an extension of that. If it is not interesting to watch your characters talk about it for 30 minutes, why do you need to? Yeah. I think you could even shorten that just to, if it's not interesting, don't do it. Mm -hmm. And that also comes with the caveat, if it is interesting to you, do it. If you don't necessarily want to skip over the whole planning sequence, you don't have to. There's no reason you have to. That is up to the table. I mean, I remember that best episode of Narcos when the main character did his tax return. Isn't that everyone's favorite episode? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I would watch an episode about that. Yeah, not um, Pablo Escobar, the EPA guy or the DEA guy. Oh, yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No, I'd, I'd watch an episode about how Pablo Escobar did his taxes. Sure. Uh, okay, so flashbacks. Shove money. Focusing on flashbacks. You yes. can spend stress to attempt a retroactive action. I think it's really important to point out that this is probably the biggest mechanical difference in this game than a lot of other games you're, you're ever going to play. Also, this isn't like, there are some other games that have ideas like this, but using your flashback is like a big mechanic that you're not going to do often. You're supposed to do flashbacks and you're supposed to do them frequently. And everyone is supposed to do Yes. Them. I've certainly seen this mechanic in games where you have like a mastermind character that that was their main thing. If you watch Leverage, that's one of the main character's things is he can do that. I have been sitting here for a minute trying to think of the name of that show because yep, it is leverage. so applicable right here. Yes, that's this por that portion of the episode of Leverage where they go into the sepia tone and it's just them doing stuff. You're supposed to do that pretty much every few actions throughout the score. It's just understood. Relatively simple examples of this, like hey, I was here casing the joint earlier and hid our guns in the vent past the metal detector. That's one stress, right? Like, that's easy. If you want to do something more complex, like, I don't know, I made best friends with the guards and got to know his wife and snuck some poison into their drink and now all the guards are nauseous. That's probably three stress on their scale. And would probably require a role. And would, would require a role. And I think it's important to note that this is one of the main ways they expect you to spend your stress. This and resisting consequences. This is a, a major factor, factor of the game and how they expect you to get ahead of, well, frankly, when you're outclassed. Yeah. So the only real rule for it is you can't contradict any fact that has already been introduced. You can't undo something another player or the GM has said, but you can put a new spin on things. And I think that that's really like, this is full on improv, yes and. Yeah, it's, it's true collaborative fiction. One of the examples in the book which I really liked was a guard comes along and finds a character and arrests them. Well, he can't say that that didn't happen because that's what's been established. So he tries to do a flashback and says, well, yes, he arrested me, but the thing that no one else knows is I bribed him earlier 
and he's in on the whole plan. And then obviously would have to make a pretty substantial role for that. But if they pull it off, like, yeah, you see me get arrested, but when you go a couple rooms later, I'm, I'm right there. Yeah, because I'm there with some advantage that he was hiding, holding for me, right? He arrested me so he could give us like the bar spreader off screen. Not only can you do actions that your character specifically did, you can do downtime actions. You can say, I actually spent a lot of time when we were taking a break, uh, casing the museum to learn information about it. Or I actually acquired a sniper rifle. I just didn't mention it until now for some reason. Because I know that you guys judge me because I have too many rifles already. So I kept my sniper rifle a secret, <laughs> you judgy jerks. Um, but yeah. now who's talking? Right. <laughs> Uh, I like to imagine that all of these are revealed very much a la The Leverage Show sassily to your fellow party mates. It's not just, I did this thing. It's, see, I did this thing. Weren't you wrong to judge my love of sniper rifles forever, right? Alternatively, a la Serenity. Wow, should sure would be great if we had some grenades right about now, yes. wouldn't it? <laughs> Anybody, <laughs> Actually, anybody think of that? Um. That brings up loadouts. Uh, we didn't touch on loadouts before, but they come up during the engagement. You have access to all of the items that are in your character's playbook, but you don't have to individually pick each one prior to a mission. You just have to pick the rough number of items that you're bringing with you called your called your loadout and yeah. that means that over the course of the actual mission you can pick at that time when they come up what it is you have which also cuts out the hypothetical well what if i need this what if i need this that can sometimes create you know additional planning angst that doesn't have to be there, so it's not. I really like the loadout rules. I think they're because brilliant. Because not only do they determine how much you can carry, they determine how conspicuous you are. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, so if you, you know, wander around like, yeah, I, I took max loadout, so, you know, I have plenty of weapons and armor, like, great, but you're, you're wearing a trench coat and it's just bulging and <laughs> clinking with, like, knives and guns and bombs. The cops are going to stop. Yep. Why are you wearing a trench coat? Carrying a rolling suitcase. I don't know. Why yeah. aren't you? Clink, 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 clink. <laughs> Wandering around like your average D&D character. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and something else I really like about them, each playbook has a special list of items for them, many of which are something anyone could take but cause a zero loadout for them. For example, the uh, the Spider, the Mastermind playbook, they have a fake identity and set of supporting documents. So they can just say like, oh yeah, I have a fake ID with me. Here's all the information you need to see. Here's my fake passport, no problem. The zero loadout stuff is particularly cool because it's the stuff that that playbook is always going to have. You're never going to catch a Mastermind without a fake ID. Like he's gonna Nick Fury that every single time. Yeah. Yep. After we have flashbacked, we've gotten in, we know where we pick up. One of the most common roles that you're going to make and one of the things that you're going to do on just about every action is you're going to use the system's teamwork roles. All the time. All the time. It is more necessary to success in this game than any other game I've ever seen before. There are four basic ways to use teamwork. The most common and simplest is an action called assist. You take one stress and add one die to a teammate's roll for pretty much anything that you can justify. You can take the lead where one person who is probably good at an action leads the group in some sort of, in a role, in some sort of test. We're gonna sneak past the laser grid using gymnastics. Everyone rolls and we use the best result 
the leader takes, is it it's one point of stress for everybody who fails, right? Uh, you can also protect your teammates. You can, this one doesn't cost stress to use, but you can choose to take consequences for somebody just, you can just choose to. If Ben gets shot and would take two wounds, but I already know that Ben has one, and so that would kill him, I can just say, I dive in front of the bullet. I take it. And finally, if you can come up with a reason that an action you could take could improve another character's position or level of effect, you can just do that. If someone's in a fight, you could say, well, I try and distract the person they're fighting. It may not hurt the guard or whatever, but if it distracts them, then that should make that person's role easier. The book lays out the rough structure that they expect and this is, of course, dependent upon your table, but that they expect uh, your game will take, and so that will roll between downtimes and the score um, pretty consistently. All right, so downtime is pretty obviously the space between heists. You're going to have it. It's not supposed to take up a huge amount of at-the-table time. There's going to be a series of clocks, and you have a whole bunch of different actions that you can take during it. You can do things like re reduce stress, or you can decrease your, oh goodness, your wanted level? You can decrease your, your, your wanted or heat. Heat, yes. And you can work, you can work on your, um, on your gang. All these things are going to be on clocks. Can improve different skills and attributes. This is when you, you know, they're not going to call it it, but it's when you level up. It's making any sort of advancement that isn't going to happen directly on screen. It can be improving a skill. It can be setting up a long-term plot or goal. It can be expanding your base of operations so you can have more people in the crew. Whatever you want to do. In a board game, this is the upkeep section. This is the, you know, the three major sections of the game are deciding your heist on the heist, downtime after the heist. I also think it's worth noting that an another part of downtime, besides you get told how much heat you got for whatever heist you just pulled, there's a random event that the GM will bring up to you. Because the whole point of it is that you're supposed to feel like you're in an immersive, complex world. You know, if this is Peaky Binders, wow, no, if this is Peaky Blinders, it's Peaky another Binders. gang starts trouble, or the law starts starts sniffing around on your street to try and figure out what's up. Some event happens off screen that starts to affect you. We'll life. get into this a little more when we talk about setting, but one of the things that they're really clear about is because your city is walled in by lightning walls to keep out the demon whales, there's nowhere to go to just let the heat completely die down. You can't just, we do the thing and then go to Hawaii for six months until the heat is gone. No, there's no, there's no way to do that. This game, this city is a constant boiling pot of tension. Also, they're very clear that there's nowhere in the city that isn't claimed territory. When you start the game, you start by picking who you're either allied with or who you've pissed off by claiming a couple of blocks. And that is also present in this, this portion, which is called the entanglements section of downtime, because you are involved in some variety of drama as the world shifts around you. And one of the things that I really love about the way they handle downtime is it can be as nitty gritty or as we say this happens and, and make a roll as you as your table wants. I could very 
easily see downtime taking 10 minutes for some tables and a whole session for others and it being fun either way. And I really appreciate that level of flexibility. I always imagined that if we did it, there'd be like a few scenes during downtime and then everything else would get fast forwarded. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, that, that is how I think our table would handle it. But there, there are certainly tables and I think it would work for where they would just fast forward through everything to get oh, to yeah. the next heist. And I think that would work. Yeah, if you just want to, um, to loot, yeah, just keep on rolling. And there's the potential here, particularly in the entanglement section, where anything that happens in downtime can easily bleed right over into the next notional plot arc, even if you're not necessarily having that sort of GM-driven structure that you might expect in a different game, even if you are pursuing the score-driven, player-driven kind of uh, direction, you can bring any of this into either picking the next heist or complicating the next heist. Yeah, the red sashes who you picked off have a guy tailing you, and as soon as they see you break in, they go and get the law. One of the options is a demon shows up and approaches your crew with a dark offer. That could easily be a heist. Or you could try and figure out what to do about the demon that's suddenly coming for you. It can be like the season plot for like your standard crime drama. Um, there's the overarching plot that's going to get handled during downtime, and then it can bleed over into your weekly episodes of heists. One of the things that I think is super cool is a lot of games, particularly a lot of heist games, looking at you, Shadowrun, really force you to be aware of the consequences and what's going to happen after your heist while you are doing it. Blades of the Dark says your job when you are on a heist is to get out, hopefully successfully, but to get out. It's to do whatever you set up to do. And then we're going to worry about the consequences in downtime. If you end up shooting 10 cops to get out, you can get out. You succeeded. But boy, howdy, is your heat going to go up when it's over, right? You are. You do bring up a fascinating point of how, like, it really highlights the desperation of this world. Yeah, you're, you're supposed to do the thing regardless of what it costs you and then worry about what it costs you later, right? Right. But also, if you want to, if your table would spend that downtime doing subsequent scenes where your characters wrestle with that morality and that the, the subsequent trauma that they've taken from their various stress and consequences, you can do that. And it would this be awesome. And it would be awesome. Before we move on, something else I think that is actually a really cool mechanic they have here it would be pretty easy to overlook. When you have downtimes that require you to make rolls, such as you're trying to acquire a an expensive or illegal item, or you're trying to build something, which we'll talk about in just a second, or anything like that, where you need to measure success on it. You can spend money, and they abstract money into just coins, they just call them coins, to improve your success level. You know, if, if I want to buy a really fine magical sword, GM's like, sure, that's really hard to do, but I can make a roll, and as long as I have enough money, I can get it. I'm really rolling to see how much of my money do I have to spend to find the cool sword I want? Which, like, totally makes sense when you're talking that you're a crew of scallywags. Like, I'm going to try and sneak and get this map to the next place without effort, but if I get caught, I'm just going to bribe the guard however much it takes. I'm going to get my map. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. It's great because it doesn't just, like, yeah, you spend your downtime action, you failed. Ah, sucker. 
it prevents that it makes you consider like well i want to i want to get that cool sword but is it worth trying to get it now or not it also is a cool narrative effect of like yeah in this horrible world, everything can be bought, anything at all. We should bring up the most important thing that you're going to do in downtime is indulge your vice as the form of recovering stress, because this is how you recover stress in the game. Your character has a vice. You pick that at character creation. It is when you think of the uh, sword and sorcery games where your barbarian comes back to town and carouses and then runs out of money and then goes back into the wilderness again, this is where you go and carouse, whatever form that takes. Whether you are overindulging in some, in some specific fashion, if you have a, a cult that you have to commit your free time to, if it's your standard lust or drugs or et cetera, However it is, part of your character's plan, being a scoundrel, is to fund this other obsession that is what fuels their drive. And it is going to make your life hard in some way. It will attract trouble. It could cause you to gain heat. It could cause you some other form of trouble, like your purveyor cuts you off, and now your, new, your character's new problem is they need to find some other way to satisfy their vice. But you need stress in order to really function elsewhere in the game, so you have to indulge that darker part of your character in order to move forward, and that happens during downtime. When Helen says you might overindulge, she's not kidding. When you fulfill your vice, you roll a d6, and that's how much stress you clear. If you roll over the amount of stress you have, you overindulge, and then you roll to see what happens. Um, and all those examples she gave can happen. One of them is you go on a bender and you don't show up when the next score is about to happen. And you have to make a temporary character, or not even temporary, you have to play a different character while that blows over. And of course Which the game is, is the set most up scallywag of things. Yes. But the game is definitely set up for that. You have a stable. This is one of the reasons why. Yes. Yeah, because you're a bunch of criminals, sometimes people aren't going to be reliable. And, you know, sometimes living in a world with no sun, uh, where everyone becomes a ghost, and that is, exists because of the electric walls made of demon, powered by demon blood that keep the demon whales out, sometimes you just need, to, just need some me time. That's what this you is. You just need to play craps for 14 hours at a time so you don't go crazy. Yep. Um, I never uh, want to see any of you people again. I also particularly like that one of the options they give for your vice is weird. Yes. So if you're like a mad scientist, you know, what did your vice? I stitched together a corpse over the last month and I animated it, but then it went mad, so I had to hunt it down and kill it. Excuse <laughs> me? Oh, uh, I mean, I... I had a nice date. The way that I would flavor the weird, like the one that I like really like as a vice idea for a character is, well, my wife died and I'm trying to find her ghost and everybody's a ghost. So I'm looking for it. I thought I saw it. And so I ventured out past the wall. Sorry, I didn't get back in time, guys. <laughs> right? Like, I think that's a super cool idea. Yeah. I've got to get it before they whisk it away. Right. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely talk more about that in this in the setting episode because that is... That is a lot of fun. Really, everything about this is a lot of fun. So I think that this talking about ghosts and magic and weird shit uh, leads us right into our next section about rituals. 
in the setting, they provide you the opportunity in downtimes to use or design rituals or inventions. Rituals are powerful magical effects that take a fair amount of time to do, at least a half an hour, probably more, but they can have very powerful <clears throat> effects on the game world, though they're also pretty stressful for you and often have some other pretty negative effect, like gaining the attention of demons. Nah, it's fine. So the totally system fine. that they give you is actually pretty, pretty forgiving. You and the GM go back and forth asking each other questions, such as, what does the ritual do, and how is it weird, and what new belief or fear does knowledge of this ritual and its attendant occult forces instill in you? I love that so much. It's so I great. I love it so much. <laughs> so, in this way, you and the GM can work like, okay, I want a spell that controls the weather. Like, okay. That's like, I understand that. That's that's pretty clear. Um, how big, like, do you want to control the weather of the entire city? Do you want to be able to summon a hurricane? How long does it take? Like, you, you get to work with the GM and, and go back and forth. How does knowing this ritual mess you up? And then the GM has a whole chart of like, uh, they call them magnitudes. So like, what's, how big an error does it affect? What's the range? Uh, how powerful can the effect be? And they add it all together and that tells them how much stress you take, and if there is a role, how difficult the role might be to, to cast the ritual. Specifically, I love that question. What new belief or fear does knowledge of this ritual and its attendant occult forces instill in you? I love that question. Just because it really reinforces everything that's supposed to be grim and weird and dark about the game, it really keeps it in flavor. And there's not a whole lot of crunch at all. There's no crunch. <laughs> there's no crunch to speak of in the ritual section. And that's fine. We can, we can probably talk for a long time about the purpose of crunch and the controls on narrative in, in a game and, and dyna dynamics at a table. But being able to bring narrative devices, which in this case, the only mechanical element here is that it costs a certain amount of stress, uh, and, and that's it. So this really is a narrative device. You are exchanging an amount of stress for a narrative thing that you would like to happen in the game, and here are all of the story things that you are doing in order to bring that forward. Keeping it in theme by asking, how does this frighten you? or what is a new, something you now truly believe, something that is now real what, to you. What fresh hell have Whether you or not, You know, it's actually, yeah, what fresh hell is this? Like that, I, I like that they ask that question. I like the question itself. It's quirky and I like the reason that they ask that So question. inventions are, you know, it's the physical instead of magical side of the same thing with the exception that most inventions are going to be much smaller scale. That's not entirely true, but like you're probably not going to make a weather machine that controls weather for the whole city. But the the trade-off is they tend to be easier to use. However, you aren't the problem for them is not using them. It's building them. And that can take a number of long-term projects, but it also comes with one super big advantage. If you want the super-powered, collapsible sniper rifle that can punch through the armored wall and you have to buy it from somebody, somebody's going to notice and that's going to give you heat, right? Like that level of illegality is going to come with heat. If you take the time 
to build the super secret expanding wall punching sniper rifle, you're not going to get any heat from it. You built the thing. Nobody knows you have it. Well, until you use it. Until you use it. <laughs> yes, until yes. you take... And there, there is a drawback for that. If someone notices you using it uh, and you have the conspicuous drawback, you nah, can gain heat. No, but that's it. Let's be fair. If you bought the sniper rifle and got heat, you'd still get heat when you used yep. it too. So that's true. <laughs> you're still you're getting less net heat out of this. That's true. But the examples that they give of things that you can craft go all the way up to make a hull, make the chassis for the hull template in the in the game. So there's your That's mad science for right those who, who don't know the system and we haven't done our setting yet, hulls in this system are robot golems. If you ever wanted to mix- Powered by a ghost. Jewish folklore with steampunk, they got you. S- steampunk it's or Tesla punk? If we want to be- There's a difference. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, now, one of my favorite parts of the book, and I like the whole book, but I really enjoy this. They have a whole section about how to modify it or introduce new mechanics or even just make new settings or sy- systems with this. They give an example that's a new crew type, vigilantes who are out there to bring justice to the people. And obviously they work a little differently. They don't get money as easily because they're not stealing as much as everyone else, but they get a lot more reputation and they have cool new ways to spin the reputation. There are also a whole line of games that use the base system, but modify it for a different genre. And these are called, they're Forged in the Dark games. A couple of the big ones is there's Fistful of Darkness. It's the magic weird west. There's Scum and Villainy, which is definitely, totally, absolutely not Firefly, cough, cough, wink, wink. And or Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, it feels even more Firefly. And or but... what we're playing at our next game. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I am in love. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, and then there's Band of Blades, which is a failing war against an army of undead. It's totally not fighting against the wall in Game of Thrones. Definitely not. A lot of these Forged in the Darks are legally distinct something else, but here we are. Girl by Moonlight is a collection of different anime genres. I believe they have mechas. I think they have actual magic girls. They have a couple different ones in there. Blades Against Darkness, at the time of a recording, is still in beta, but it is a dungeon-delving weird west fantasy. It's quite interesting. I think it's worth checking out. And Brinkwood, which had a Kickstarter recently, where you play revolutionaries empowered by the Fae to overthrow the vampire aristocracy. Okay, that one is not a ripoff of something else. That's a whole new level of weird. Yeah, um, that's, um, <laughs> that's some original IP right there. Yeah, that's uh, that's <laughs> doubling down on your weirdness. Which they, yeah, I was going to say, like, I'm absolutely yeah, here for that. Directly into <laughs> Okay, so we're going to go person by person and talk about what we liked. Normally we each share one thing, but because there's so much we liked about this system and because so many of us liked so many of the same things, we're just gonna have each person list everything they like about the system and the rest of us will chime in and say like, I really liked that too. It's not gonna be the, we all go in order that you have come to know. So Ben, why don't you start us off? Tell us some of the stuff you really loved about this system. Let's just start with the simplest one. I love how to borrow something that Helen wrote down, I love how accessible it is. I think that this is a, she used it a little differently than I'm going to, but I think it's a 
perfect beginner. I can't imagine, you know, if I had a group of really creative people who I wanted to guide through, like, what, what can role-playing be like at its best? This is a system that I would feel very comfortable handing them each a sheet, saying, here's a few dice, we're gonna go fucking rock out. For me, for what it's worth, I would hesitate to introduce this game to anybody who has zero experience with collective storytelling. But, like, anybody who has done any sort of collective storytelling, I'm in. This is a great intro for them. But because of the flashbacks and stuff, I would probably want to do a one-shot of something really simple, like D&D first. But if I had a group of people who are like, hey, I role-played at a store this one time, and I want to go see what the world is really like, I'm like... Let's go beat crime. I don't know. I just really imagine shattering someone's entire, like, brain when they come across that guard around the corner and they're like, I'm completely up a creek. I've got nothing left to do. And I can be like, what if you went back in time (laughs) and did a flashback? And then they're like, oh my goodness. And that's a great example of how how the format can really be beneficial to even brand new players because rather than making them sit there and think through every possible permutation of a heist ahead of time, you can just hit the ground running. The book talks frequently about keeping momentum going, keeping keeping the pace and and the interest going. And so if you're just trying to get everybody warmed up and get everybody into the flow of the game, don't make especially people who haven't done this much before sit there and think about all the ways that their plan could go wrong let them get into their plan and then if they have an idea work it into a flashback and then that's that, that yeah seems perfect. I, I, I didn't want to imply that i don't think this game is good for beginners i just want to say that i think that you need to have yeah comfortable beginners if that makes sense it, it does require um a certain type of beginner they can't be people who are really afraid to embrace their creativity i remember the the first time i went larping the first five minutes they called five minutes to game and i immediately had a meltdown because i was self-conscious about role-playing and sometimes being able to just have something mechanical to hold on to to kind of get you through those times when you're you're nervous about the storytelling aspect, you know, maybe you can't at that moment say, you know, and I swing my sword and do this. Maybe at that moment you just say, I'm going to roll attack. And that's okay. If you are a little more comfortable or you have somebody who's coming at it completely from another angle and they're just not as interested in the dice at all and really just want to hit it from a, a narrative side, then yeah, then they could probably really hit the ground running in this game. And I yeah, think that absolutely. would be fine. Um, I have some friends who I got into role-playing who came from the wargaming board game side, and they like really need ah. the crunchy rules to be invested. And yep. if I had introduced them to Blades of the Dark to start, I think they would have had a panic attack. But after having handed For them sure. a dice-heavy game once, I would then direct them to Blades of the Dark, and I think they would be very happy. Yeah, and, and part of that is always just going to be if you've got somebody that you are introducing to games... You really have to make it about what they want to do and how they are going to have fun. Because if they're not going to have fun, they're not going to come back. Ben, what else do you like? I love the clocks. I know that they're kind of a hand-holdy mechanic that you don't need to use. To me, drawing 20 different clocks on sheets of paper would be 
a really easy way of keeping up with it. I think that that's something that not a lot of books focus on. They assume that you as the, the GM are going to come up with your own skill set on how to manage um, how to manage all that information and yeah they're that's correct but at the same time um, it never hurts to give someone a, a tool that they can hang on to at least to start with until they figure out what they want to use long term or if they just want to keep it's using certainly it. a lot simpler than like how i'm keeping track of everything happening behind the scenes in hunter I honestly have a 30-page yep. document. That's like, for real. It is 30 pages long. Yeah. <laughs> this is what's happening in the background. The, I think clocks are so important for this game because this game really wants to be upfront about, like, you guys are really competent, but you're in over your head. And just by the nature of the story and having a player-facing mechanic of, like, okay, especially a visual one, right? Of, like, yeah. I made an eight-piece clock. You know eight pieces... I mean, that's as high as it generally goes. So that's that's really complicated. It's going to be difficult. It's going to take you a while to get through it. Versus, you know, this is a four-part clock. Um, and, like, half of it's already filled in. I think having it be player-facing and having it be so visual really helps the player, like, okay, this is where we are, like, keeping that forefront in their mind. And even if, if it's something that's personal, the team could just hand the clock to the player and, like, all right, you keep track of this. Yep. I'm doing other stuff. And when it comes back up, we'll figure and I, that out. I just again. think that there's, it's such a good way to handle the impending doom of the setting. Like the guards yes. are coming. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. in over your head. You better get this done because they're coming for you. And then when they hear that you're here, then they're going to start trapping you. And if you let that clock fill up, then God help you. Right. And I love that that impending Oh God, they've noticed us. They've noticed us. We don't have the object yet. We've got to get the ring and leave, right? Like, it's a... I would love to print off tiny Victorian clocks um, and just print, you know, paper combinations and just, you know, have some that are four, some that are eight, some that are six, and just hand people clocks with like, you know, little tags that say what they're for. From the storyteller's side, too, I know that when I've run games in the past, one of the things that I, I sometimes distract myself thinking about is, am I scaling this appropriately? You know, are they getting through this too fast? Are they not getting through this fast enough? Is something on my side making this more difficult than, than I really should? And having a clock that, that maybe is just for you as a storyteller, just to kind of keep track of their progression uh, and and just to see, well, you know, are the challenges adequately scaled? Am I fixating too much on one thing or another? I think you could adapt this mechanic out of yeah. Blades in the Dark uh, and take it to other games where you're building encounters. And I, I probably will. I think it will be helpful for me in just being that visual abstraction uh, that I can I can just keep in the back of my mind as we're going. I also deeply love The Devil's Bargain. Um, probably in any game that I run from here on out, I will have The Devil's Bargain because I love the idea of anyone at the table being able to suggest an action. And it's going to have a consequence, but I just I love that idea of them being like, hey... You know, if, if you're, whatever, you've had a long day, whatever it is, and you're just not creative at that moment, someone else can jump in, help you get going with your character. 
not taking over, but being like, hey, you could try jumping over the guard, or you could try shoving him. You know, it's going to cause this or that. I, I think that's a really great way of involving the table in all the decisions. I absolutely adore the Devil's Bargain. I wouldn't bring it into every system, because I think some systems are already that. complicated enough that they would snap under the weight of this. Yes. <laughs> cough, cough, exalted. But any system that can afford a little bit more complication, I would love to do this. But my yeah. absolute favorite thing about the Devil's Bargain is, as a constant GM, one of the big frustrations is... I've dropped a bunch of hints. Everybody in the party, except for one person, knows what I'm trying to get at. And that one person is the person who the action is for. And nobody else in the party can think of how to tell them in character. And they're frustrated. And everybody is frustrated. And that doesn't happen very often. But it happens, right? Like, we're human beings. And Devil's Bargain is just a simple way for somebody in the party to say, Hey here's a solution to your problem that would have this consequence and doesn't feel like you're taking the person's spotlight. It feels like you're helping them. You're helping out the GM. The GM can suggest it. It's absolutely, it's the get out of, I don't know what to do here, jail, for free card. It's it's like the, I'm stuck, press emergency button mechanic, and it's magnificent. It's the whole reason I want to play this game. I mean, there are other things I like about this game, but the game could literally just be that mechanic, and I'd be like, let's play. Monkey's paw phone a friend. That's exactly what it is. It's monkey's paw phone a friend, <laughs> and if that doesn't excite you, I don't know why you're here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. then you're tuned in. I will say that the, one of the one of the complicated things about balancing a mechanic like that, where you will potentially get something that you want, but there will be a cost. That's always complicated, and that is something that is going to be specific to every table. And there are other games that have tried similar, perhaps not in the same style as this, but, you know, something good can come out of something bad, or you can do something that will voluntarily put you into a complicated position for some benefit. Being able to balance the potential complicated position with the benefit so that it makes everybody at the table comfortable with the exchange is always, always, always going to be about communication. Yeah, and I will say that this is one of those mechanics where GMs, if you are new to GMing and you want to GM a Blade in the Dark thing, I would honestly sit down with your table and before you've done anything, have them pitch a few, you pitch a few, so you can all get a feel for how you as a table are going to think about that balance. Because a lot of it is somebody suggests a thing, the GM suggests the consequence or the other way around. So like you need to make sure that you all are on the same page. And if you're new to GMing, that can be daunting. But I think that it's so helpful for gameplay that I would urge if you're new to GMing, just practice a little bit. And if you're an experienced GM, this is like a room full of candy. The book is also in its guidance to GMs and storytellers. The book is very clear that this is all cards on the table for both the storyteller side and the player side. You are encouraged to telegraph your actions and they are encouraged to act on that information. Uh, and that is how you're building the story together. So communication, just work it out at your table. 
that sends me right into my next kind of favorite thing. It's not a specific thing. It is the overall cooperative nature of this game. I mean, the GM rolls dice once. He has one he has one roll that he'll ever make. One situation. Of one situation, yeah. yeah. And that, to me, is brilliant because it's truly cooperative storytelling instead of the GM. I mean, and it's fine. Uh, you know, however you want to play, play. The GM, he or she is not just putting monsters on the table and saying, hey, fight these. You're collaborating to tell a story full of intrigue and... I think a good tip in that vein, whenever you get a new core book, is if it has a section where it talks about how to be a GM or how to play a game, read it or like at least skim it. And that'll tell you a lot about the philosophy of the game like what the writers were thinking about when they were putting the game together. And that will probably tell you a bit about whether or not you're going to enjoy that game, if it lines up with how you feel about running and playing. And also, that's one of the places on a more meta level where I've learned the most about how I want to GM even for other stuff. Like reading the here's our game philosophy on how a table should work for Spire has completely changed the way that I GM. The moment that I read for the first time, there's no consequence for failure, don't roll. I was just like, oh, well, I'm an idiot. <laughs> like. <laughs> well, would you say it that way? It seems so simple. Yep. It seems like I should have known this forever. <laughs> That's how you get nine successes on a simple survival yep. roll, right? That's how you find yourself in that trap. And so I think that that's great advice. Look at that section of a game. I usually look at it first to see if it's even a game I think I would enjoy. But like, don't be afraid to take those lessons to other games. Yeah, doing this has made me try to make D&D games more collaborative. Yep. That's, that's not a point of emphasis for that game, but I'm. it's a point of emphasis for me opening my mouth. 